Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa. Homage to the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Yeah, there are different uh, traditions for chanting. So (laughs) next time I'll shut up and just let you you get on with it. (laughs) Um, I just thought I would take the life of the Buddha and uh, mosey on around it and just see what thoughts arise when we contemplate the life. Um, I suppose there are two things that the, uh, the Buddha stands for for us. He's both an exemplar and an archetype. Uh, I've got a definition here of archetype. It's a primitive mental image in the collective unconscious. I think that's a bit of young, isn't it? And a recurrent symbol or motif in mythology. <clears throat> I'm sure that's what it means, but I suppose what I mean by it is uh, some sort of um, template, some sort of inner image which we have really already within ourselves and which uh, the tradition uh, defines for us in in specific ways so that... um, the specific uh, actions that the Buddha takes during his life becomes for us examples of how we ought to behave. One of the... Uh, uh, that, that sort of thing, exemplar and archetype, really exists in all walks of life, doesn't it? You know, we have an image of the artist, of the academic, of the worker, and so on. So these, these sorts of background blueprints exist in our minds anyway. And um, uh, spiritually speaking, we have these great figures which remain for us exemplars and archetypes of uh, our spiritual lives, you see. Hmm? One of the uh, interesting uh, questions is, uh, which arose really from the way the West discovered the Buddha, is that <clears throat> there was a time when they didn't actually think he was a human being. He was a solar deity, and the, the nimbus that was around his head symbolized this um, origin of being a solar deity. And the reason I bring it up is because if the teaching had come from a solar deity, see, how, would, how would we feel about that? It had been channeled down to Ananda, and he he wrote it all down. (laughs) And uh, what the solar deity is saying is that there's a a place where there's no suffering, and that um, uh, he's got there, and he's got the T-shirt, and uh, and it's possible for everybody to make the same place. But the fact that it's a solar deity does raise a question in in the mind, doesn't it? For instance... If you knew that um, uh, a deva or some great uh, 
angel being had climbed Mount Everest. And so you knew it was possible by certain beings, uh, but uh, you weren't absolutely certain that a human being could actually make the top. The fact that one person did actually make the top uh, makes it open to everybody. And everybody can make it, if they want to, that is. And uh, I remember some time ago, a 70-year-old woman climbed up there. So it just shows that once somebody has actually done something in, uh, in, in our history, it makes it open to everybody. Another example of that would be <clears throat> Einstein's theory of relativity. So there was a time, if I remember rightly, when, only, when Rutherford, who was a, a scientist, I think, in Britain, said that with only two people who understood relativity, uh, Einstein and himself. Now, it's, now it seems to be first-degree stuff at universities. Um, unfortunately, the image stops there because even though the Buddha did make it, it doesn't particularly make it that much easier for us that there's been 2,500 years of history of people trying to climb this particular spiritual mountain. However, it does make it uh, tangible that another human being actually achieved a state of non-suffering. And uh, that, that should give us that inner confidence that, you know, we, we have all the same potential. There's no difference in terms of our uh, faculties and being uh, from the Buddha himself and that it's simply a matter of time and we'll get there. So that should lift our hearts a bit, I hope. Even in the, even in the worst moments of our meditation when we seem to be wallowing in hell we should remember that <laughs> there, is, there is always that potential and it lies within us and hell, after all, is transient. So uh, this idea of the Buddha being um, an archetype and an exemplar uh, is something that we begin to internalize and... Um, it's not really important, so this is another question that often arises, as to whether it's historically true, the stories around the Buddha are historically true. <clears throat> so the only thing that we can say with, I think, absolute certainty is that there was a person called Gautama who lived approximately 2,500 years ago, uh, lived a life and then died and left a teaching behind. The bare bones of the story, how he was born and how he left home and, and all that, <clears throat> uh, probably has uh, a basic truth around it, but the stories that, that built up around it are, shall we say, apocryphal. Uh, just to give you an example of how, of how that can happen, even in this modern day and age, there was a, there's a famous monk in Sri Lanka, at least he's famous in Sri Lanka, He's a Danish monk, and he lives out in the forests. And he lives in what's a, what is a three-sided kuti. So there's only three sides to his hut with a roof. So that means that he lives quite happily with snakes, poisonous uh, uh, creatures, poisonous spiders and things like that. And uh, that's his life as an ascetic life. There's two or three of them now that, that live like that up there. And uh, he, would make, he would wander down to the local village for his uh, food. And on one occasion when he, when he came back, an elephant jumped out and um, 
he told me he didn't have time to chant the loving kindness sutta, and the, uh, the elephant ran over him. Unfortunately, he stood, uh, stood on his hip and broke his, broke his hip, and uh, he lay there all day, all night, until the villagers thought, why hasn't he arrived? So they went off looking for him and found him on the path. Now, the fact is that that elephant did not mean to kill him. If, if the elephant, they tell you, if an elephant means to kill you, it will definitely kill you. <laughs> the elephant, it seems, only came out to give him a little shock. But unfortunately, in so doing, went and stood on him and, uh, and broke his hip. So uh, I can't remember the name of the monk. So he ended up in, uh, in uh, hospital, and uh, he told me that... Um, you know, they did a terrible job on his, on his hip, and he still goes around with one leg half up in the air. But um, this story filtered down to uh, Colombo, which is about, I suppose, maybe at the most 80, 100 miles away. And I was visiting Colombo at the time, and there was a Swedish monk uh, there. And he said to me, have you heard about so-and-so? And I said, I have. By then, I'd only heard rumors, you know. I said, yeah. I said, this thing about an elephant. He said, oh, yeah. He says, uh, quite remarkable, he said. He was sitting in posture under a tree in meditation. And uh, a big she-elephant with a little child came along. And they were entranced by, his, by him. And the little baby elephant moved towards him and tried to sit in posture, fell over, and broke his hip. <laughs> so this happens within a couple of months, 100 miles distance. So this gives you an idea of how apocryphal stories uh, gather around somebody who has uh, a certain reputation about them. You see. But for our, for our purposes, the, uh, the stories are just there really to uh, enhance the basic uh, template which is uh, the path that we're on, that's all. So in the story, of course, the, uh, the Buddha doesn't begin with the life that he's born uh, into. He's been, he's been through these thousands of rebirths. And um, there's a point when he is an ascetic called, Deepang, uh, called Sumedha. Now, you won't be surprised to know that Sumedha was, in fact, a very rich prince who gave everything up when he saw the vanity of life and uh, ended up uh, taking on the ascetic life. He heard about the Buddha, and having heard the name of the Buddha, was, uh, was greatly moved by it. So he went to meet Dipankara. And uh, when Dipankara came, there was a puddle of water. I'm sure you know the story. And he threw his cloak upon the puddle and threw himself down upon the cloak and asked that the Dipankara, the Buddha, and all the Arahats who were following him should use his body as a stepping stone. And when Dipankara saw this and saw the, uh, the uh, qualities of Sumedha, he prophesied that this person would indeed become a future Buddha. So now, you see, we have to consider... Uh, is there anybody you know that you would do that to? Throw your coat down, lie in front of them and say, please use my body as a stepping stone. So it brings up this whole uh, relationship that we might have to a teacher and what a teacher uh, 
uh, how we relate to the teacher in our spiritual lives. So one of the two things that, uh, that come to mind are uh, around this word authority. So we say somebody is an authority, and we also say somebody is in authority over. And these two things are very different relationships, aren't they? So when somebody is in authority over you, it inspires fear, uh, a certain anxiety, because they have power over your life. But an authority is somebody who, obviously, you respect, and that brings up in you a certain sense of reverence. However, that uh, split is not so, uh, shall we say, easy. You can't just say, well, uh, I look upon the Buddha as an authority, but he definitely doesn't have any authority over me. Uh, There is that, uh, shall we say, point where, having respect for somebody, you therefore accept their teachings. You, as it were, surrender to what what, uh, the person says or what the person is asking us to do. So even, even these days, when we're very sceptical of doctors, once we've, um, shall we say, uh, had faith in the doctor, uh, once the doctor has prescribed a certain thing, we tend to follow uh, the prescription. So uh, when we're thinking about our relationship to the Buddha, and indeed to any, any teacher, there is that uh, reflection to be had as to what my relationship is. To this person. At one end, of course, you've got the sort of fawning devotee, you know, the one who goes around kissing the teacher's feet, and whatever the teacher says must be true. So this, uh, this isn't quite what the Buddha would have wanted, I think. Um, he, he wants a person to maintain a certain independence. And if you remember, I think it was just before he died, wasn't it? There was a young monk looking upon him with great admiration, uh, while he was there, and he sent him packing off, packed him off to the forest, didn't he? He said <laughs> he didn't, didn't particularly want to be uh, surrounded by people with adoring eyes. Um, and yet, you, and yet, it, 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 the other end, of course, is is the continual sceptical follower who doesn't believe a, a word you say, uh, and who won't actually do. Uh, what you want them to do. So those of you who have been teachers, I know they must have come across these two types of people. So it's a case of, again, uh, recognizing that um, the Dharma that we have is spoken, is passed on to us by another human being. And it has that quality of having been lived, having been uh, experienced. So sometimes uh, reflecting upon that, reflecting upon the personage or the person of the Buddha brings about those uh, sense of that sense of reverence, that sense of right attitude to the teaching. Yeah. Then, of course, there's um, uh, the whole business of relationships, even to our teachers here and now. You know who we listen to, um, and and that sort of. Uh, Ability to receive uh, and yet not to lose one's own um, independence, as it were, to receive and to have that attitude of trial and error to make sure that there isn't just that um, blind acceptance, a sort of blind faith to what's being said or to what's being 
asked, uh, what we're being asked to do. So all these things are important in our spiritual life, you see, just to get the attitude right. And uh, these attitudes, remember, are beneath our practice. They're there as uh, certain traits that are subconscious, or should we say subliminal to our practice. And so if you find yourself, for instance, always balking and always not wanting to do things, you know, sometimes ask yourself, what's, what, is, what is your basic attitude to the Dharma? So here we come to this whole business of bowing, you see. So bowing for Westerners is um, it's a bit of a pain, really. <laughs> I remember when I first went to my first classes in Zen, and uh, there they only bow from the waist, of course, you know. And uh, everybody did it, so I mean, I did it, but I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. And it took me quite a long time to get the hang of what bowing was about, actually. I mean, I did it, you do it because... Well, because everybody's doing it, you know. And uh, in, in the Zen practice, of course, you bow even to the room you're leaving. You bow to your cushion, you bow to your plate, you bow to your toilet. God, there's nothing you don't bow to, you see. So, <laughs> so in the end, uh, you get the feeling that there may be something in this bowing. And uh, bowing is just a strong body language, isn't it, for surrender, for that, open, that ability just to receive without... Um, without negativity, without aversion. And uh, that connection between, you know, the mind and the body. Uh, Remember that the Eightfold Path always begins with right understanding, then right attitude, and then right speech, right action, right livelihood. So somehow the right understanding and the right attitude needs to be expressed in a certain way. So when you feel when you feel a resistance, when you feel a resistance against the practice, some form that you don't want to do it, you can't do it, or something like that, bow, you know. You just, just actually try it. Just actually, uh, just secretly in your room. You don't, have to, you don't have to do it as a public display, you know. And to actually bow and to, when the body is in that posture, it's in that posture of surrender, see. It's ready to be trod upon and to be used uh, by a higher being as a stepping stone. So that, uh, that brings about that sense of uh, humility, you know. And in there, that, that, that feeling of reverence. And uh, I was going to say the word obedience, you say, but that's a horrible word for us. Don't like to be obedient. So... Uh, these little stories, you see, when you read about them, about the Buddha, if you just let your mind wander about it and just ask yourself, uh, what's its meaning for me? You know, how does, it, how does it relate to me personally? How can it uh, inform my own practice? And in that way, these, these, this archetype, this exemplar, is imbibed. It becomes part of our own nature. The next thing, of course, is the, uh, the whole teaching around these rebirths. Um, and at some later date, maybe I'll go into um, the idea of rebirth. But <clears throat> what, uh, what always interests me is this underlying conception of time, how we relate to time itself. So in the Buddha's time, uh, 
the idea was that time was circular. It was constantly repeating itself. And um, I think if you just look at just a, an ordinary year, then you can see how that can be understood. I mean, it's uh, the seasons, and every day the sun rises and it sets, and you get up and you go to bed, and you're born and you die. And so there's that feeling that, in fact, although everything is, shall we say, a little bit different, the underlying, um, uh, the underlying blueprint, the underlying motion is one of constant circularity, constantly going round and round and round. And um, if you can just imagine now, if you really believe that, just for one moment put yourself into that mental state of believing that you've lived a life over and over and over again, sometimes as a horse or an elephant, uh, sometimes as a little being, a mouse, and then a human being. But always, you just keep coming back, keep coming back. And it's always birth, old age, sickness, death, a bit of happiness stuck in there somewhere. <clears throat> but this never-ending, ceaseless movement of just going round and round, the same old thing, the same old job, the same old relationships, the same old fallouts and the same old making it up and the same old <laughs> breakfast and the same old toilet. And, you know, it's always the same, going round and round. Just, and you get that feeling maybe of that growing despair of how the hell do you get off this wheel. Hmm? So if you have an image, shall we say, of a roundabout and you've got your horse and you're going round and round and having a good time and the beer and all that, and then suddenly, you know, the, the leg falls off your horse and you've got to get off and put it back on and things fall off and arguments start and people start throwing bottles about and you think, I want to get off. And then when you want to get off this roundabout, all you see around you is this void. Whether you look down or up or across, there's just nothing there. You're just stuck on this roundabout and there's no way off it. And if you were to jump, then you just get sucked back into it. So if you can sort of imagine that sort of mentality, that's the, that was the mentality around the Buddha's time of circularity, of constant repetition, of no escape. And so the idea of escaping this was one of the obsessions of the time. You know, how do you, how do you stop this rebirthing? So <clears throat> there were many answers, of course. There were some who believed in uh, after a, even at the end of this life, you completely annihilated, and that was it. And that uh, the best bet would be to make the best of this life as you, uh, as you can and, and really go for it. So the, that sort of thought is, is, is well known to us these days. And there were some who thought that you went on for a few rebirths and then you, um, you, you annihilated after that. And then there were some who thought, well, you did carry on rebirthing, but it got better. And you ended up being a great Brahma up in the high heavens. These things, of course, the, uh, uh, the Buddha would have uh, known. That was, you know, he would have known all these arguments, all these, all these ideas. And um, uh, even so, as you know, through his practice, uh, he came to realize that no matter what beautiful state of mind he could attain, it didn't last, it didn't... There was, there was still that falling off, that particular uh, level of being, you might say. Now, as opposed to that these days, you see, and that's why we find it 
difficult, perhaps, to accept this idea of rebirthing and whatnot, is that our idea of time is an arrow. We actually think we're going somewhere. We have this idea of progress. We're going from this place to that place. This uh, is embedded, really, deep within the Judeo-Christian religion, but especially in Christianity, where the early Christians, for many uh, years, presumed that the second coming was about to happen. And the idea of, a, of the medieval society was to establish something stable, something which was godlike, ready for this second coming. As the centuries rolled on, and it didn't quite seem that it was going to happen, there came the idea, started off by a monk uh, writing at the time, who talked about three ages. The age of the father, which was the age of the, uh, before Christ, the age of the son, which was the age that we're living in, and the age of the spirit, which would come in some future time when the human race had progressed to receive it. So there came this idea of progression, the idea that you know, we were going somewhere, the human race was actually going somewhere. And uh, this has been accentuated in our day and time by technology. It would be foolish to say that technology has not progressed. And we get the impression that just because we have this enormous progression in technology, therefore we must be going somewhere. But uh, unfortunately, when we uh, look around us and see what we're doing with this technology, then that, um, that hope begins to fizzle and fade. But even so, we're stuck on this idea of this progress, that we're actually moving towards some sort of aim. And when we uh, bring that to the Buddhist teaching, then we find the idea of rebirth and whatnot difficult to accept because we've lost that sense of circularity of time, that constant repetition, the repetitiousness of time within time. And uh, this, uh, this idea of progress, of course, seeps into our practice. So there is that uh, quality. It's not as though Easterners don't have a sense of even, you know, say people who live with that, still with that sense of circularity, which is, I would say, uh, most Easterners. Uh, it's not as though they're not grasping in their practice, but uh, in a sense it's coming from a slightly more superficial level. Within us, I think, we have a much deeper level that we think that there's some sort of progress to be had through the practice, and what it does is it seeps into our practice as a sense of uh, trying to do something, see? trying to do something. So we've been able to do a lot with our technology. So when we come to sit, there's that underlying, I think, understanding or <clears throat> presumption that we can do something. And the idea that actually we don't have to do anything but just watch is uh, difficult for us. Sometimes, you know, when I was, was in the East, and um, especially in the villages, I didn't go out very often, but especially in the villages, it always seemed to me quite remarkable how people could just sit and seemingly stare. They would just stare at things, whether it was a fly going around a window or uh, just the countryside. Uh, but uh, when you looked into their face, it wasn't as though the face was dead but they were just able just to stare. And uh, that ability of just to relax into the present moment and just to be in it without wanting anything from it at all, 
but just to be completely receptive, you see. So we find that, I think, a little difficult. And I'm suggesting that maybe it's to do with our conception of time at a deeper level, the idea of progress, that we've made progress, uh, and that it's up to us to do something. And um, the idea that uh, the, the whole process of uh, purification of the heart and of insight comes by actually a process of relaxing and just watching, and everything arises quite naturally, is, I think, just a little bit difficult for us, that's all. With these two types of time, you see, the circular time and this arrow, the time as an arrow, there's another time. And this time uh, we can call the immediate present. In, uh, in Christian mysticism, they talk of the nunc stans and uh, the nunc fluens. That's right. So there's a now which is in a state of flow and a now which is absolutely still. Um, perhaps you've had the impression sometimes, uh, I'm sure you've had it on a train where there's another train by next to yours and when one of them moves, you don't know whether you're moving or whether the, ne- the other train's moving. And it just takes that little bit, that little moment to gather the fact that either you are moving or you're not. You might have got the sense sometimes driving, especially driving, just driving down a, a motorway, for instance, of instead of you passing through uh, that space, that you were still and the space was passing through you. It's uh, something you can try anyway. So it's only a, another way of, uh, as we say, positioning yourself. So suddenly to find within yourself that position where there is that stillness and everything that is arising within our perceptual faculties is what's moving. Now, that presents us with a different idea of time because the idea of circular time and the idea of time moving as an arrow demands that we go with it, demands that we are part of that motion. So now when we sit in meditation and we gain that position at least of the observer, see... Being aware of transience, being aware of things arising and passing away, means that that which is aware of it can't itself be arising and passing away. And it's sitting in that position which gives us a different feel for time. It's not that time isn't circular or that there isn't some sort of um, movement. Uh, for instance, you can't go back on time. Yeah? But the fact is that in terms of the actual experience of being in time is only momentary. So this idea of time is just a way that the mind relates, the way things have happened in the past. When we, when we talk about space, what do we mean? We mean simply the relationship of objects, don't we? It's the way all that space is, is a measurement between objects. If there were no objects and there couldn't really be any space. So it's with time. If there were no events, there'd be no time. And our concept of time, circular or uh, arrow, is dependent on how we 
the mind, that's it, this, this particular consciousness, organizes events. So all memory is past. It can't be, you can't go back on memory. That's it, it's finished. And the future hasn't happened. So by remembering that, all these concepts that we have of time are simply mind-made. And that if we can find this position within ourselves of observing events arising and passing away, then we find this other position where there's no time. The other thing that comes up with the idea of um, rebirth and uh, these constant, uh, this such a long time that it takes to become um, an enlightened being is, uh, you know, the question of why, why it takes so long. See, I mean, why, why is it that once we've sort of grasped the teaching, the anicca, dukkha, anatta, everything arises and passes away, we cause our own suffering, and there is no self, you know, why isn't that, why isn't that enough, you see? Why isn't that enough for us to uh, move forward rapidly and uh, find ourselves in a week or two fully liberated? I remember a friend of mine who, uh, when he first heard about um, uh, you know, Buddhist teaching and Nibbana and all that, he decided to do a course. And if you think about it, when you go on a course, at the end of the course, you, you achieve what you get, what you went in for, and you get a certificate. So uh, he presumed that by the end of the week he'd have grasped this idea of nirvana and he'd be away. And he told me, he, as the week wore on and, and the time came for him to leave, there was this growing sense of despair and disappointment. <laughs> uh, later on he was able to overcome that, of course, and continued his practice. But uh, the fact that um, we have this, uh, uh, this idea of, um, or this hope that things might uh, progress very quickly uh, is undermined and uh, by our practice we find it hard we find it is difficult and uh, surely the reason is that you know our conditioning is so deeply ingrained and we keep falling back you know every time we uh, progress a little bit we then fall back a bit so here we're working very hard for a couple of weeks a month a whole year and then we go out, and before we know it, we slip back into the old ways. And so all the old conditioning gets lighted up again. So it's a case of uh, recognizing that um, it just takes, it's going to take quite a time to uh, develop enough momentum to keep moving forward at a pace which seems to us uh, obvious. Often uh, you can only really look back over a, a good space of time, maybe five, ten years and see, oh yes, I have progressed. But if you look back over a week, it does seem appalling. I put all this work in, and we don't seem to be getting very far. So it's a case of, uh, again, that sense of, uh, of you know, um, of realism, really, uh, a sort of humility about ourselves. There was a very famous Hindu saint in Sri Lanka whose, whose uh, saying was, the spiritual life was one step forward, two steps back. So you can see it's uh, even in all traditions, it's understood to be difficult. And uh, it's a case of uh, building up these paramis, these, uh, these um, virtues within us. And, and that takes time.
The other question, uh, of course, when we go back to this archetype and exemplar, is the fact that uh, there must be something in us which already knows that it, it needs to seek liberation. These stories which talk about eons and eons and eons and going back to um, uh, Deepankara many, you know, world systems ago, um, from, a, from a sort of, from an, uh, from an archetypal point of view, is suggesting that within us, at all time, there has been that seed that wants to find out its own true nature. When this, uh, when Buddhism developed through the Mahayana, of course, it became known as the as the embryo of the Buddha, mm-hmm. and uh, the embryo of the Buddha, uh, through uh, the practice, through these constant rebirths, finally becomes a Tathagata. Mm-hmm. The Tathagata Garbha, the embryo of the Tathagata, becomes the Tathagata. So the idea that um, there is something in us which is seeking liberation. Is is uh, is is presumed uh, is presumed within the within the practice, and this, uh, of course, in the in the Buddha's own life, in his growing dissatisfaction with the way he was living. Hmm? So, in a sense, whether the Buddha had arisen or not, you see, we would have been seeking. We would have been in our own way seeking our own liberation. So that, uh, that then now brings us to his descent into his mother's womb. And um, um, I wonder if I've got... might not have too much time to do this. The, um, I suppose the last, um, the last thing to say before I go on to... because this will take a, a two or three talks to finally get through his life and, and, uh, and just see what we can glean from it, you know. Um, just to go back on the whole idea of the Buddha being an archetype and an exemplar, um, the idea that uh, he was an actual human being and that we as human beings, therefore, um, have the same capacity to attain exactly what he attained and how that, rise, how that raises in us that inner faith and confidence about our own practice. So when you have doubts about yourself, you know, um, everybody, ev- everybody else can do it, but I can't. I'm special that way. So remind yourself that, in fact, uh, the capability of becoming fully liberated is there within you. And to ponder that, to ponder that, to really sit within that inner confidence the idea of a relationship that we have towards a teacher as an authority or in authority and how those two can become confused and how we must uh, maintain that certain distance within, within ourselves, that certain capacity to constantly reflect upon our practice and make sure that we know what we're doing. The idea that uh, of time, time being only a figment of the imagination, it's only the way that we look at things, experience things, and that if we can, as it were, stand outside the process, which is exactly what we're doing when we're sitting, standing outside the process. Remember that everything is being created by our own minds. Even though the world out there has some reality, 
It's only the, the, the reality that we experience is only being created by our own minds. So to be able to sit back and take that position within ourselves and to watch our minds and to watch the flow of events within our minds immediately pulls us out of this idea that time is circular or that it's going anywhere. Yeah? There is another position. And to have the patience you know, to work with it, not to presume that... Um, Things are going to happen too quickly, you know. So I hope uh, my words have been of some assistance and that uh, before very long you will join the Arahats and become fully liberated. So I think now there's... Now, yes, I'm going to let Robert lead the chant if that's all right, Robert. that arises with my practice may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue my mother my father and my relatives the sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor, May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme soul of all beings, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Just as a, a reminder, uh, I, I got permission to do Qigong in the uh, walking hall, which makes it a bit more spacious. So feel free to come and uh, practice if you wish. Um, 
I, I will also put a, a little bit of paper up here on the board for Dharma questions so that if anything arises either from what I say or anything in your practice, uh, do put it down and we can have a, a question and answer session. And uh, that's it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.